let's get ready to scale. everyone, welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. And with me, I have, we are the trio. I have Jeanette, formerly Robinson Friedrich. Did I say it correctly? It's a new name for me. You All right. Yep. And congratulations, uh, Jeanette uh, married a few weeks ago and we all went to her wedding. That was really, it was a beautiful wedding. Um, and uh, Ryan Rosletsky. Uh, with me. And so today we're going to talk about the state of the market and we're going to share what we see um, from our chair, from our side um, of the equation as owners and operators of multifamily assets across the U.S. We're going to talk about rents. We all know that in some markets, rents are not growing as fast. Maybe they're going down. We're going to you know, look at the data and tell you what we see and what we experience. We're going to talk about lease ups and supply and demand, talk about inflation. And, you know, we're, we're uh, recording this on Thursday, November 2nd. And um, we just heard about um, the news um, of what the feds are doing with interest rates. So we're going to talk about that. And just one thing to remember, we're very, very data oriented. So there's no fluff here. We're going to show you some data, share with you where we're getting this data from. And we can also share how our assets are doing and what we see from just operating our own assets. So you can see, um, you know, how things are being done and, and what, you know, we see um, it's kind of opening a, a back door to the operations um, of a multifamily um, operator. So um, let's get started. Um, you know, there's been a lot of chatter um, recently that rents, that the good times are over, that rents are not growing anymore. Maybe they're even going down. And I know that this is something that is on top of investors' minds. Um, and, you know, I wanted to to kind of break that concern, um, you know, break it down in, into pieces and kind of talk about what is actually happening. Are rents going up? Are they going down? Um, and if they do go down by how much and if they do go up, by how much and you know which markets are more affected by this fluctuation um so you know we were looking at our own uh, portfolio and also at data um there's a really good uh, report that we can uh, hopefully we can add the link to the show notes um uh, real page reports and um uh this company is backed by ai they do a lot of research and we're using them um you know quite uh you know quite frequently um, when we were making decisions um, at our company. And so most of the rent cuts, they're highly concentrated in the South, especially in the West regions. Um, and so, and maybe, you know, uh, Ryan, you can bring, uh, shed some more light and more data uh, as to what is happening. But I can tell you, and we're going to get into it later, that on our portfolio, we still have assets that are are experiencing a tremendous increase in rents. Um, so, Ryan, tell me, you know, what do you see? Um, you know, what is the data that you have in front of you? Um, what is the what is it suggesting? Yeah, I'll show, I'll, I'll share a slide momentarily that that really hits on everything you just kind of covered, Ellie, in, in summary. So, 
Market fundamentals, they remain strong in light of decade high supply and rising interest rates. What's interesting, and specifically Jay Parsons, the, the lead economist at RealPage, um, released something just yesterday. It's not necessarily out to the, the broader public just yet, but um, high supply markets historically outperformed lower supply markets due to strong fundamentals. However, this is a period now where we are seeing multi-decade high levels of, of supply and, and it's temporary, it's transitory. Um, and exactly what you just said, it's really concentrated to the West and in the South, which is these are your major supply nodes where where they're seeing the most level of construction. I mean, annually, we're going to see inventory grow um, about three and a half percent going into next year. And that, that's that's above the two percent um, kind of average over the last several decades. So th this is a big number. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll share an exhibit that kind of articulates the the broader U.S. market base and, and where it's it's isolated to. So you can see that. Um, and really what it comes down to is any any market that's over about 5% of, of inventory growing year over year is where we're seeing rent softening. But keep that in mind. I said softening, rents are still growing, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. So, um, so as we were just kind of alluding to, Ellie, you can clearly see the, the Western markets that you were mentioning, and a lot of them are core gateway markets. When you look at San Francisco um, down to Los Angeles is, is still seeing modest rent growth. Um, and this is new lease growth, keep in mind, because the next exhibit we're going to show you um, breaks down new leases versus renewal leases. Uh, but you can clearly see the, the Sun Belt. So Austin's a, a huge market for inventory growth right now. Um, they said more than 60% of inventory was constructed after 1990. And most recently, 25% of total inventory was built in the last five years. So that's a big number and reason why um, new lease growth is, is declining in, in uh, markets such as Austin, despite how well the economy is doing and how robust the employment and migration trends are, you're still seeing softening rents because of the hyper supply. And then even going down to the Southeast, um, where you can clearly see Raleigh, their inventory is growing 10% year over year. However, in Raleigh, inventory is, is highly concentrated, or new deliveries rather, is highly concentrated in Central Raleigh and Southeast Raleigh. So you still have really strong rent growth in, in the far North pocket, uh, which we've seen a, a couple of assets recently that are still seeing almost double digit rent growth. Um, some of that's organic and some of it's through forced appreci appreciation through value add upside. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's still growing. So that's just a clear indication of where we say rents might be softening. However, it truly is sub-market specific. You, you got to look at more than just the broader market, which is looking at all inventory. And most notably, another thing to note is um, the Midwest. See, see all the green. So what, what that's essentially saying is they're still seeing new lease rent growth over 3%. And these mid Midwest markets are where, where they're seeing the lowest level of supply. Yeah, and it's interesting because when it comes to the Midwest, the you know cash flow is usually better than in other markets. Um, the flip side, uh, you know, on the flip side, when you're exiting, usually there's not much appreciation. And so that's, you know, one of the reasons why um, one of the reasons why we're actually not investing right now in those markets, because we like to have a balance between um, the cash flow during the whole period and the exit where you get another, you know, nice check at the end. Um, so it's interesting to see 
the trend um, kind of in line with with our strategy, where we're actually investing in markets that have a a positive cash flow um, and and a positive rent growth, but also um, you know had markets that do have appreciation that. Um, the value of the units, the value of the properties are going up year over year. Uh, Jeanette, what can you share with us um, when it comes to our portfolio? What do we see in terms of rent growth? Um, are we still experiencing this? Um, you know, if you can just talk a little bit without naming specific properties, just in terms of, you know, uh, markets, uh, the properties in certain markets, what do you see? Well, thank you for asking because I was going to interrupt forcefully if I had to anyway, um, because I wanted to laugh actually um, as we were looking at that map. Because, and you know, Ryan, you hit it, uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said that you can't just take data like that, use it, you know, when it's just a broad generalization and say, you know, and that's that's what that's the truth about that market because it can be very different depending on the location of the asset, uh, the submarket, you know, so you have to be careful with those types of generalizations, right, when we're looking at data and really dig in further. So, you know, for example, on the map, you know, it showed Phoenix looking uh, terrible, less than 0% is what that actually just said, as far as rent growth. And, you know, we just recently acquired a new asset in Phoenix, meaning that we haven't even started our renovations yet on that asset. But one of the reasons we select, selected that asset and identified it as having a lot of potential was because it was already below market rents when we acquired it. And so, you know, while maybe, you know, that data that you just shared looks like there's no growth, I can tell you for a fact that I know that we achieved from 4.2% at our lowest <clears throat> up to 11% uh, rent growth just last month on that property. And for for people that don't understand how that really correlates, you know, to to real numbers and just real dollars, that's basically a range of rent increases anywhere from 114 to 315 dollars, and that's without even doing renovations. That's just bringing you know the asset up to market value. So you know, just because the data looks one way, you know, you've got to dig in further to really understand that. And so you know, um, to kind of touch on what both of you alluded to as well. Um, you know, I laugh a little bit because no one, you know, no one, especially from a marketing standpoint, right? The news is not going to, you know, go out there with, you know, gentle headlines. Rent growth is a little lower than it used to be. You know, that's not exciting, you know? So, oh, rent growth is crashing. It's declining, you know? Well, yes. Okay. So we're not seeing $500 a month in rent growth on a single asset, maybe. Okay. But we're still seeing 300 uh, on several of our assets. We actually, on at least two of them for sure, we achieved over $300 rent growth just last month. So, you know, it, it's just how people are phrasing, you know, the information that they're sharing. So yeah, we're not seeing, you know, the insane, you know, 30, 35% you know, rent growth like we did, you know, a couple of years ago, but 60%. Rents are yeah, yeah, it was huge. Yeah, 60 was our, our biggest, I think it was 59.8 or something like that. That was the, I think the highest rent growth that we've experienced. And we all knew it's not going to last. Um, But, you know, when we were discussing, uh, you know, the show, because we always like to have a prep meeting, um, Ryan had a really good point, Um, you know, when it comes to uh, the, zero or the net or some negative um rent growth. Uh, Ryan, can you share, you know, 
what you said um, at that meeting uh, that basically the benchmark is what's important. You got to understand rent growth compared to what? And that's a key exactly. thing to understand. Yeah. And, and Ellie, it's just that, right? So when you're saying new lease rent growth is softening, uh, okay, great. But that's only 50% of the equation. The reason I say that is because you, what I call, I, I define it as leftover dinner. And, and what, what I'm alluding to is, is renewal rent growth. And, and when I say leftover, we're not talking about the next day. We're typically talking 12 months in advance because that's the, the, the average duration of a lease term, which is actually extending out is a way to battle some of this uh, supply. So don't, don't let me forget to touch on that. But what I'll show you an exhibit here is at the end of the day, rent rolls are still growing. And the rent roll is is what is a high proportion of the value of your asset because you want to grow your rent roll. It, yes, new lease rents are, are a portion of it. But if you think about 50% retention roughly is, is an average across um, the multifamily market. So 50% of your leases is coming from new leases, but 50% of your rent growth is also coming from renewals. And, and what's really interesting is to look at the trend we're seeing here. So I'm going to share my screen once again on a great exhibit that articulates the, the fact that rents are still growing. So what we're looking at here is a, a comparison over the last decade. So you can see on the left-hand side, we're looking at average new lease rent trends. And then on the right-hand side, we're looking at average renewal lease trends. So you can clearly see rents exploded kind of from pent up demand post pandemic and, and averaged about 15%. So that's what you see in the spike there. But when you look historically, really, let's say after the great financial crisis from 2009 to let's call it 2019. So that decade, the average was approximately 4% new lease growth. But then now take a look on the right hand side, renewals are more steady. Because at the end of the day, new lease rates fluctuate. They're impacted by supply, demand, um, and, and other components. But look look how steady average renewal leases have grown over the last decade during that same time period from 2009 to 2019, around 4.5% to 5%. And now look at the most recent trend um, over the last, let's call it two years, rent, renewal rents are really driving rent growth. So that's why when you see all these headwind headlines um, that are pessimistic and, and talking about downward rent trends and softening of rents, yes, that might be true on the new lease side. However, there's still an opportunity to grow your rent roll through new leases or through renewal growth, um, which is coming in above 5% over the last uh, several quarters. So you can clearly see rents are still growing. Yeah, and that's a very uh, important distinction and analysis actually to understand uh, and, you know, going back to Jeanette's comment, the news are, I mean, the, the, uh, the magazines, the news, all the emails you're reading, they have one goal to make you click on an article. And if you're being a bit extreme and, and, you know, setting the alarm bells and sounding very, you know, harsh and serious, and sometimes you do need, you need to do it if it actually justifies, uh, if, if the situation is uh, dire, um, but many times the goal is to show that things are much worse than they are. I'm not saying there's no pain in the industry. I'm not saying that there's no uh, assets that cannot push rents. But as you can see, and, and as we can see, the it's it's uh, the devil's is in the details, right? You need to understand the details. You need to educate yourself. And so as an investor, what I would suggest that you do is really, um, you know, before you jump into a new investment, ask about the data 
that was used in order to determine the performa and the rent growth that the sponsor is assuming. So I can share with you that we're using um, a, a technology that is backed you know, by AI, it's machine learning. And that technology is looking at the asset that we're looking to, uh, to purchase. And it, it, it takes into account um, the current rents and the occupancy and the concessions, meaning all the different um, reductions in, in rents to attract new tenants and what's happening, the same metrics in the submarket in the, and in the market itself and in the U.S. And it predicts the concessions, the occupancy and rent growth for the next couple of years, because it's very hard to do it beyond, you know, year, you know, beyond the first two years at the property level. So that when we're underwriting a deal, that um, platform is telling us, okay, the deal you're looking at right now, we're the the system, uh, the software assumes that in the next 24 months, there's going to be, let's say, 5% or 2% rent growth. And, you know, you have to put in, you know, maybe 1% concessions and your average occupancy is probably going to be 94%. And that's very important because we're not putting our own emotions into underwriting, trying to make a deal work. So looking at the numbers that the, um, that the software is projecting and we're trying to use that information. So we're making decisions that are very, you know, that are backed by hard data. Um, so we're not leaving anything, you know, for to, to guesstimate. Um, we're also using all kinds of conservative, um, uh, creative ways to generate more income. So not, you know, just growing rents is not the only source of increasing our NOI. So we're looking at all kinds of ways, um, you know, to, to um, maintain a very high retention. Um, we're adding additional fees. We're embedding also all kinds of AI tools to increase collections. And so there's a lot that is being done um, in the background, but essentially my point is it's it, it, there's so many de details, so much information that goes into the you know the decision of how much we should um, underwrite as rent growth, as you know concession and and you know occupancy. Um, that it's really it's really really important to understand all the the different dynamics and and the wealth and breadth of information out there. So definitely working with an AI tool is helpful to to get that. Uh, you know, number. And I can tell you that years ago, um, two, two and a half years ago, we were looking at those numbers and sometimes the AI, um, you know, platform generated rent growth at nine or 12%. And actually, I'm pretty sure that we've achieved those um, or more. But we looked at that, those numbers and we said, we can't put it in our underwriting. You know, that, that's going to be irresponsible. So we actually lowered the numbers um, and, and put more conservative numbers. But they're usually that technology is, you know, is pretty good. Um, I want to move on to the next topic and talk about uh, supply and demand. And so we have, you know, Ryan mentioned earlier, there's a lot of markets with, you know, with um, more supply than others. Generally speaking, we've seen supply going down a bit, and that's mainly because of the um, rising cost of labor and materials that 
have stabilized somewhat recently. Um, but the interesting thing, and, and, you know, Ryan can talk more about it, is that there's a link between supply of new uh, units and the demand for multifamily in that market. So Ryan, why don't you uh you know share with us what you what you see? What what does the, the the data suggest? Yeah, so exactly that is is you know, developers are are pretty smart. They 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 know ahead of time, they they're looking at not only just U-Haul statistics, they're they're looking at consumer behavior patterns, they're looking at rent levels, and they're going to where people are moving to. So when you see high levels of supply, that be that that predominantly can signal there's strong fundamentals in the economy, whether it's a, a robust employment um, demographic or blue chip demographics, robust employment in, in multiple different sectors. So exactly what you just said, Ellie, is in these high supply markets, they're seeing extreme, extremely high levels of, of absorption as well. So what, what I'll show you is th there's approximately 1.1, 1.2 million of units actively under construction. However, we're absorbing those at a rate that is unprecedented relative to historical levels. So let, let's take a quick peek at another slide that'll show you total absorptions and how we went from three consecutive quarters in 2022, seeing negative absorption, meaning that there was more supply than there were um, demand at the time. And that that has flipped um, in reciprocal at the beginning of this year. And, and now we're absorbing these in, in a positive manner. So as these units come online, they're actively being absorbed. So let, let's just take a look at the historical trends here. So as we briefly touched on it, and this is this is the entire United States multifamily rental market, but you can clearly see there was pent up demand that we talked about in 2021 that really drove, in addition to other socioeconomic trends and, and other factors that supported um, strong demand in the rental industry, and, and now most recently, what's helping what's helping the rental market um, is the affordability gap, which we'll we'll talk about a little bit later. But that is truly fueling demand for rental housing. So as you can see here, as I mentioned, the, the last three quarters in 2022 had negative absorption levels relative to the beginning of this year, the first two quarters. Um, and most notably, the, the 80,000 net positive absorption in 2023 in just one quarter was higher than other historical levels in the same quarter. Because um, really, you got to look at seasonality and, and delivery schedules to understand that Q2 and Q3 is, is the period in which most leases expire and the most number of leases are signed. So you can clearly see in the face of high levels of supply and new deliveries coming online, we're positively absorbing these units. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting too, right? I'm glad that you're bringing that up because this is something, again, being very transparent, that is actually starting to impact our portfolio, uh, as well as probably many others. And it's it's interesting because it's not something that would be readily obvious, but because we've had so much new supply coming into the, the market, it's actually created staffing wars, if you will, in the property management sector. And so, you know, property management now, um, it, it's pretty incredible what we are seeing 
as far as uh, some of the wages and salaries that are being offered uh, to property management professionals. And we've had to, you know, also admittedly kind of increase uh, our salaries as well to be more competitive in the market because it's begun essentially a staffing shortage nationwide uh, for property management professionals. And so, you know, it's it's a great sign to see that the demand is there, but along with that good sign for the demand is also the challenge for us to have the human resources to be able to actually rise to all of that demand. So it's just been an interesting kind of nuance, um, you know, that's been introduced into the market the last couple of quarters uh, that, you know, we admittedly are working our way through. And and so, you know, my previous, uh, in my former life, I did, you know, a lot of headhunting. And so, you know, we've, we've had to get more creative and really think about, okay, well, how are we going to address, you know, this property management staffing shortage? Uh, and, you know, it's everything from offering really attractive sign-on bonuses uh, to having a referral program. Uh, another, you know, interesting step that we've taken is actually offering uh, discounted units to encourage staff to actually live on site. And, you know, really in today's economy, when, you know, we're in an inflationary environment and everything is just more expensive, you know, that's a real benefit, not just to uh, the staff members themselves, but for their family members as well. Um, you know, so I think it just really requires uh, sponsors to get a little bit more creative uh, to start thinking about how they're going to staff up their properties. Well, I was going to say, it, it's really coincidental. It's, I feel like we always have these aha moments. And, and I, I was actually just speaking with a, a very large national apartment owner operator, and they they specifically specialize in lease-ups. And I never really thought of how staffing challenges for stabilized properties can be impacted by lease-ups. And what they really articulated to me is they said, as a leasing consultant, let's say it depends on the market. Let's say you're making $21, $22 an hour. It's about forty-two dollars to $45,000 per Per year and leasing bonuses typically on a stabilized property you get $75 for every new lease maybe $75 for renewal however these lease ups these developers offer steep very intense high levels of leasing bonuses because they're they make the money on the delivery so they want to lease up as fast as possible so the incentive for leasing consultants i've i've heard 20 to $25,000 in annual leasing bonuses during a lease up period which is driving more demand for people or, or for leasing consultants to go to the the um newly developed properties because they can generate 40% more in an annual basis than they could on a stabilized property. So that's that's giving challenges as well because um, developers are, are in, and property managers are being very competitive in salary and bonuses. And I, I never really looked at it from that perspective, but it was, it was really interesting to see the data behind that. Correct. Yeah. And then it actually leads to why we're seeing a little bit of softening rents also in the market if you really want to, you know, take it 360, because when you have all of this new supply coming online, then, you know, you have to offer discounts to be competitive because they'll offer very discounted rents because all they want to do is lease up. And so if your property happens to be, you know, remotely close to this newly developed property, you've got to be competitive and you've got to lower your rents a little bit to compete. So it's, you know, simply the the dynamics, uh, you know, of uh, being a part of a competitive economy right now, which is what we're at, where we're at, at least in the multifamily space. Yeah. And speaking of expenses, um, it's no secret that expenses in general have increased. I would say that payroll is probably the second most expensive line item in the expenses, you know, part of the, um, of the uh, NOI. 
the first one is usually property tax. What we love about Arizona is that property tax can go no higher than 5% year over year, regardless of how much you sold the asset for. So that's one of the good things about, you know, investing in Arizona. Um, but really everything is becoming a bit more expensive. So with inflation, you know, people are, uh, employees are expecting higher salaries and you want to, like, you know, you guys said, you want to make sure that you're attracting the right talent um, and you're competitive. I think it's extremely hard for class C assets that are not generating as much income um, to bring a decent, you know, you know, staff um, that are usually going to class B and class A assets. Um, and that creates a lot more problems. You have fewer people in the office handling things than, you know, you have maintenance issues. Um, not many leases are being uh, renewed and not many leasing consultants are there to actually sign you leases. So the property income is going down. And that means that it's even more challenging to pay staff members to keep them on the property and they leave because they, um, they're frustrated. And so it's kind of a, of a vicious cycle. Um, and it's really important, you know, to have good staffing. And many times we've noticed that the regional manager, the, the, the property management company you work with is as good as the regional manager. You, you have essentially, um, in any multifamily investment as an investor, you have, um, with sponsors, there's a team between, I think our smallest properties had two people. The biggest one had 12, 10 to 12 people. Um, some of them are maintenance people. They run around and, and, you know, fix the property and then, uh, and the units. And some of them are leasing. Usually it's, it's, uh, same amount. Um, and if you don't have a really good team, that can have a direct impact on your occupancy because tenants, if they're unhappy, there's so many other options out there. They're just going to leave. You know, they sign a lease for, for 12 months. Uh, it's very easy to piss an, an, a tenant off and it's very hard to regain their trust and keep them happy. And so we're always trying not to be the cheapest, um, you know, hire people on the on the cheaper side because you're going to pay a lot more for it by having lower income you have to have the right amount of people there um and then of course the regional manager is the one managing all the um the you know the 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 community manager that is placed on each property and if you have a dedicated and experienced regional manager they know how to motivate a team they know how to you know be there and not just manage things remotely um, as much as you know i knew i knew that some of you that were listening love remote working it does not work when it comes to managing properties you actually need to be there in person tenants need to see you to like you to understand that you're there day in day out um so yeah i think it's just you know interesting but this is just one part of rising um expenses um and year over year since I've been in real estate period, you know, expenses for the most part have been increasing and thankfully income has been increasing also. Um, but we're, you know, we're doing many things to make sure that we're keeping expenses, you know, down. Um, I don't know, Jeanette, what, what you can share that is not going to share too much because some of it <laughs> is, is our secret sauce, but what can you share about 
you know, what we're doing to keep expenses down? Well, you know, it's interesting um, that you say this because I, I actually had a call earlier today where we were really digging into uh, some of our underwriting assumptions and, uh, you know, and I always tell people that, you know, when people always think it's the value add, oh, we're going to go into a property, we're going to do some renovations, we're going to be able to justify charging lots extra on the rent, and that's how we're going to make a bunch of money. And really, the key, yes, that's an important part of the business plan, but the key to really being successful is about being incredibly efficient in operations. Yeah. So a lot of money can be lost on the back end when operations are not, you know, lean and efficient. And really, that is one of the things that I would say is one of our, you know, ex is, is kind of an area of our expertise really is recognizing, okay, we see a lot of inefficiencies, which equates to a lot of opportunity when we're assessing deals that, you know, we want to buy. And so, you know, without, again, giving away too much. Uh, you know, it's really a matter of coming in and streamlining a lot of processes, a lot of operations. Um, it's really evaluating those expenses very closely. You know, one of the things that I, I know for sure that is different about us than a lot of other groups is we're not reviewing the financials, you know, quarterly. We have a director of asset management who is reviewing those numbers week over week over week. And so we're able to identify potential problematic trends in advance rather than, oh, we didn't catch this water leak for a quarter, which could be a ton of money. So, you know, that's just kind of a very simple example. But I think that a lot of people just don't understand that it's it's about so much more than just going in and doing some renovations if you really want to maximize the profitability of a property. Yeah, and Ellie, you touched on it too. So I want to go back to your payroll concept when you were talking about a strong team, specifically as it relates to leadership and the regional manager position. So one of our strategies here at Blue Lake is an adjacent acquisition strategy because we can afford to pay for, for qualified talent and we can pay to retain them because what we do is if we acquire, let's say, four properties within a given sub-market, all within, let's call it a, a reasonable commute, then you have one designated regional manager that's overseeing and they're an expert just in that pocket and they're sharing resource, resources. So instead of going out and, and turning every unit with contract painters and contract cleaners, um, you can support your, your other staff by bringing in maintenance. Um, you can bring in leasing consultants that if, if a property is short staffed, instead of having to, let's say, get temporary temporary employees, which um, is extremely expensive. So it, it truly is the economies of scale. You think about it when people talk about real estate from going from residential to commercial, they talk about economies of scale in terms of growth, but they also don't necessarily look at it as um, supporting your bottom line in NOI. So that that's one thing. And then um, on the expense side, uh, I'm going to also show some year over year trends looking at the, the quarter three of 2023 um, that, that really articulates insurance and then turnover costs. And that goes into one of our, our strategies, which we'll we'll get into without spilling too much detail. So looking at year over year changes in, in operating expenses um, for the, the third quarter of 23 compared to last year, everybody knows insurance is, is skyrocketing. And it's not only just in the South, it's not only in Florida, it's, it's hitting Texas, it's hitting the Midwest in Colorado. So that that is a, a, a fixed expense, not, not a variable. So those that we can control um, are the two next largest expense line items that went up year over year is 
turnover costs, and then also marketing, which are interrelated in, in some fashion. So you can clearly see turnover costs are almost up 20% year over year. And for those listeners that might not necessarily know exactly what goes into turnover, it, it is the hard costs that go into turning a unit when a resident gives you keys, moves out, you have to get that unit ready for the, the next resident that's going to be moving in. So that's a 20% increase in expenses year over year. And then also marketing is almost up 15% year over year. And what goes into marketing is realistically customer acquisition costs. Yes, you have other refreshments, retention, um, holiday parties, and things like that that go into the, the marketing and brochures. Um, but in reality, when when you focus on retention, which is is a hyper focus for Blue Lake Capital here, especially when we're looking at driving bottom line NOI, we're squeezing margins by driving higher retention. So let's say if we retain 60, 70 percent of our residents on an annual basis, not only are we reducing our physical turn costs that cost us to actually turn units because we're turning less, but when you think about marketing expenses, so the average acquisition cost in the South for for a garden style 1990 early 2000 vintage you're going to pay $500 per customer um, and that's through ILS listings that's through locators on average you're paying about $500 to replace the prior resident that is a big number you couple that 500 with another 500 in hard turnover costs. And then not to mention the frictional vacancy that goes involved with turning a unit, because typically you want to turn a unit between seven to 10 days and, and replace that resident. Well, at an average rent of $50 per day, which is approximately 1500 per month, you're spending almost one month rent in, vacan in vacancy and turnover costs just to replace a resident. So focusing on retention drastically impacts the bottom line, um, and, and you really can't emphasize that enough. And that that's that's a very objective number because you can actually quantify how much it costs um, in vacancy, turnover, and marketing expenses. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, and it's interesting to see how deals that were bought two, three years ago where I don't believe anyone really thought that insurance is going to go up 20, 25% year over year, that puts pressure on cash flow. And so that's why it's always good to have reserves, to have, you know, to make sure that you're um, being as conservative as you can without killing deals. You know, I remember that we were looking at 12 to 13% IRR where the entire market were still at 15%. And we got feedback from investors that our returns are too, you know, projections are too, you know, um, low. And, and we, you know, I, I don't think we you can ever be too conservative, but um, it's something to say about, you know, you can, you can be as, as, um, optimistic as you want and all of a sudden every investment is a home run and so it's better to show lower numbers and and lower your expectations when it comes to uh the underwriting um i think it's it's the the more prudent way um let's talk a little bit about the inflation and you know we've been recording here for a while so i want to wrap this up um we had uh we, we all read about what the feds were doing and hopefully you're gonna hear this um, you're going to listen to this or watch it if you're looking um, on YouTube um, close to the um, decision that the feds that the feds uh, you know made recently and I think we all kind of um, assume that that's they're going to be their decision they're not increasing um, the rates um, you know again and hopefully it's going to continue this way 
I don't know what's going to happen in the next you know, few months or in 2024. Everyone, it feels to me that everyone is kind of holding their breaths and waiting to see the opposite trend where rent rates are going to, you know, are going to decline and going down. Um, and they were, they were serious when they say, when they said it's going, we're, it's going to, uh, you know, rates rates are going to go, um, up higher, you know, much higher than you want, much longer than you want. And I think a lot of people thought that they'd be done by now. And I believe, you know, when they're looking at inflation, they don't see they don't see it's coming to the level. I believe it's two percent, two or three percent of what they want, and that's their target. Um, and and so they don't they're not ready yet to bring you know rates down. And the question is, what if we're in the same position 12, 14, you know, 12, 15, 18 months from now, 24 months from now, and inflation is still not two percent at some point they'll have to to stop because the market needs stability. It's one thing to say right now we have increased and I'm being you know I'm exaggerating but we're we're, we're pushing rates uh, you know right now so it's you know 8% and that's it. The market can handle any type of of you know rate increase when it comes to making the you know investment decisions if the market knows that this is the situation is going to be for the you know foreseeable future the issue is of course it's, it's the increasing in rates but it's also the fact that the market cannot predict what's going to happen so the market can the market is having a hard time and when i say market i mean investors are having a hard time um pricing uh and assessing the risk because you don't know what the risk is if rates are going to keep going up and down. That's why we like to put fixed rate on our properties. I if it's a loan that we assume or if it's new debt. So whatever the feds are doing, it's not going to directly at least impact our cash flow. What do you guys think? You know, I'm no expert in this regard, but, um, uh, you know, in my opinion, based upon everything that I've been reading, I do think that a lot of people are under the impression that there is still going to be one additional hike this year. And then from what I have seen, it is forecasted to eventually start to go down by, uh, I think, approximately uh, Q2 of next year. So I do anticipate that we will eventually reverse this trend. I just don't think it's going to be, um, you know, anytime soon based upon everything that I have read. But I do agree with you that we the the the, the economy needs stability. So this can yeah. only go on for so long, for sure. I mean, based on everything that I've read, Ryan, what's your opinion? Yeah, you know, that, that's exactly what it is. They're just opinions at this point. It's all speculation. I, I try to read between the lines of I'm actually getting frustrated listening to Powell sometimes because I it, it, it's it's the the subtle remarks where he says it's j just because we're pausing for two consecutive after two consecutive meetings doesn't mean it's as simple as increasing again in December. So he, he's trying to set the expectation that, that we're, we're not telling you what's going to happen. All we're telling you is our Fed, our Fed funds target right now is five and a quarter and five, five. We haven't seen we, we've seen a, a relative slowing in the economy. And but the, the labor market is still resilient. 
However, we're still seeing cooling inflation. So we're, we're going to keep our finger right on top of the, the, the button, if you will, for lack of a better term. Um, but at this point in time, they're not even discussing rate hikes. I mean, rate cuts. That That's not even yeah. on the docket, nor to, and that's just it, Jeanette. I, I'm thinking the back half of next year. Um, in, in every meeting, I, I always even say, you know what, I might be kicking the can down the road a little bit more. It might even be first quarter of 2025. Um, but in the the grand scheme of things, we're, we're trending in the right direction. Um, and the problem is exactly what Ellie said, is, is volatility and stability in the, the capital markets. Is We just haven't seen that yet because the bid spread every time it would collapse something would happen either rates would move up buyers expectations and return projections would need to go up as well so the the price that they're willing to pay comes down so you're never seeing that gap bridge and the the other issue with all of this is about two weeks ago we were underwriting deals with a a, a 10-year treasury index of around four nine now, all of a sudden, after the Fed's meeting, the, the Treasury market's now down at below 4.7. We're not really changing our assumptions because it, all it took was 10 days to, to swing 40 basis points. And we're talking millions of dollars in proceeds. So we're still taking that conservative approach. We're still building in buffers. However, we're hoping the, the pause will kind of reduce the fluctuations that we're seeing in the index. And that way there, buyers are feeling comfortable about what, where they're buying, where they're going to execute, and, and sellers can come to the realization and meet the market and say, this is where the market is. If I need to sell or, or if I'm trying to rebalance my portfolio and I'm, I'm looking at strategic planning over the next 18 months, I, I'm comfortable selling now because this is where I know where the market is, not, not it's going to change in two weeks from now. So the stability in the market is, is truly going to control how much liquidity starts to enter. I think we also have to realistically acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is, you know, one of the most significant factors that could impact all of this, of course, is the situation in the Middle East and um, how all of that plays out and whether or not, you know, to what extent the U.S. becomes involved, uh, both, you know, from, you know, the ongoing issues and challenges for Ukraine and then, of course, what's happening in Israel, um, I think that that also is, you know, one of the biggest factors that can definitely really rock our economy, you know, one way or the other. And and we really won't know until, of course, you know, time goes on and, and we see what happens with that. And we're coming up on an election year. So between the, the geopolitical concerns and, and um, the, the domestic election coming up in 2024, that there's the macro economy, that there's so much uncertainty and question about where things will turn, what type of policies will be overturned, how that will impact the, the overall economy is, is a, a key consideration at this point. So the timing of that, and then like like you just said, the, the uprest and the, the um, volatility in, in geopolitics is, is really concerning and it's shocking the markets. And we're, we're seeing that. Yeah, well, for sure. You know, Ellie, this reminds me, this reminds me of a, a blog that you wrote uh, several years ago about, you know, how uh, how to deal with uncertainty um, in the market. And you wrote about and this was right, I think, right around the start of COVID. And, uh, you know, and so I have to I have to say also that, um, you know, you, you talked about this the other day, too, when we were talking about the situation with Israel which is, you know, one of the goals of terrorism is to make people freeze. It is to terrorize them. It is to get them to stop living their lives, stay in their house, you know, whatever it may be. And rather we're looking at it from the standpoint of, 
you know, the next administration to come in, uh, the unrest in the Middle East or anything else. I, I, it, I believe it or not, I am actually wrapping this all up with a pretty bow to say that what I think is so important is always understanding that you have to remain objective of all of these different factors because there's always going to be factors beyond our control. There's always going to be possibilities of things, you know, influencing our overall returns. But you have to remember why why am I investing in the first place? What are my goals? And am I ultimately going to let these factors that have really you know, I have no control over impact me continuing to work towards, prog you know, making progress on my goals for my family and myself. No, no, I'm not. But, you know, it's it's so easy to get scared and to freak out and to just stop. Yeah. And what we see is um, the more experienced investors are not afraid. They're not concern overly concerned they're reading they're educating themselves they're they're picking uh, very carefully the sponsors they want to invest in or the market they want to be investing in but they're not freezing they've been there so they've seen i mean real estate and the economy is that they're both cyclical that's the nature of, e of the economy that's the nature of real estate and so like you said whether i freeze and i'm scared and i'm not doing anything or I'm still moving forward, but adjusting my strategy, adjusting, you know, the the data that I'm looking at to make sure that I'm comfortable moving forward. And maybe by the end of the, the day, the decision is not to move forward at this point. As long as you make that decision, that it's an informed decision and not decision that is being, um, you know, being uh, that was created based on fear. That's that's the most important thing. And and I'm just going to end with that. Um, I find it interesting that when cap rates were 3% and, you know, real estate was very expensive and rents were also um, very high, the interest rates were very low, some investors did not invest. And they said, this is the height of the market. I want to stay out of it. Um, this I'm going to wait for the downturn. I want to buy that. Since then, we've bought and sold many assets um, and we've made, you know, nice returns to investors, 20, 25% IRR, um, you know, 45 and above IRR. And those investors have missed that opportunity, but I don't see them investing right now in a downturn. Th those investors actually decided to pause. And so... The, but but this is where you see opportunities. Now it's an opportunity like the asset, you know, we purchased that we're pushing rents $300 a month without touching the units, you know, maybe cleaning a little bit, but between, uh, you know, uh, between uh, uh, the, the old tenant and the new tenant. But I just find it interesting. So that's what made me understand that these investors were motivated by fear. They were afraid to make the wrong decisions and buy at the height of the market. And they're afraid to make, the wrong decision again when there's buying opportunities and much lower prices so it doesn't matter which part of the cycle they're always going to be afraid and i always tell investors you know we're not a registered investment you know advisors um and always you always have to uh consult with someone that you trust a professional you know advisor but never ever make a decision that you're not fully comfortable with do your due diligence do your research that will take some of the fear away and um 
and you know that's that's basically you know my message but that's been this uh, has been a, a great discussion about the state of the market things are definitely moving uh it's it's uh you know there's never a dull moment in real estate uh and you know we're uh gonna be back here in a few weeks talking about yet another interesting topic so thank you Jeanette thank you Ryan um, you know it's always a pleasure having those conversations with you I appreciate it this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com